0: Welcome to Off Leash Arts, Conversations on Creativity. I'm your host, Tanya Schaefer. My guest today is singer-songwriter, Noe Venable. is an extraordinary musician who's been called a homegrown, full-blown musical visionary. Although she still looks about 25, she's already had a long career, starting out in childhood performing with the legendary experimental theater director George Coates, then blossoming as a singer-songwriter in young adulthood, when she began performing in a range of venues and released her first album called You Talking to Me when she was just 20 years old. Since then, she's released seven more albums as well as a songbook, Toured with a range of artists, including Ani DeFranco, They Might Be Giants, Boz Skaggs, and Dar Williams, and been featured on NPR. Her music, which she now calls ethereal folk music for seekers, has spanned a range of styles, at various times incorporating electric as well as acoustic instruments, blending elements of pop, rock, jazz, and folk. She's also gotten a graduate degree from Harvard Divinity School, become a teacher and a mother, and recently started an online community called Nature, Spirit, and Creativity. Another fun fact is that she delighted us by singing the role of May on the album of The Fourth Messenger, a musical by myself and Vienna Ting. Hi, Noe. Welcome to Off Leash Arts. Thanks for having me. It's so nice to talk to you today. Thanks so much for being here. I have been a fan of your music since the late 90s, and I've seen you go through a lot of stylistic changes during that time while still keeping a very unique core of you-ness. I'd love to hear you talk about how the different stages of your life have been reflected in your music.
1: Wow, that's a really interesting question. Well, when I think about the overall arc of my music and my life, it's really been a journey of deepening into self-acceptance. And when I think about where I started In my late teens, early 20s, I had a lot of angst and a lot of it was around how to be myself in the world. (laughs) And I think there are a lot of pieces to that. Some of it had to do with being female and with what as women we are acculturated to believe that we can say and what we feel we maybe can't say and uh, a need that I felt to express a lot of things that weren't necessarily really acceptable for young women to express and finding that freedom and catharsis of like doing that through through music oh,
2: you make a kiss, oh I am the stolen
1: some of it also i think some of the the angst was also about being i'm i'm what you would call a highly sensitive person (laughs) that's like you know one word for it meaning you know someone who's just really sensitive to a lot of stuff so it's it's a lot you know the world is a lot it's a lot to hold I think this is true of many artists and and the way that we're generally educated, at least the way I was in school, we don't really learn a lot about how to carry our sensitivity in the world and how to live in right relationship with it in a way that allows us to be of of service and to live a, a beautiful, nourishing, empowered life. Mm -hmm. So a lot of my young life, I spent really just wrestling with the question of how to just how to even really be in the world being as I was. And um, now over the course of many years and a long journey that, as you referenced, took me to divinity school and on a, a, a path of spiritual seeking that reached also far beyond divinity school to just a lot of different ways of exploring how we are, what we are, who we are, meaning, (laughs) poetry, just all the myth, all the ways I could explore these deep questions, I now feel really different in my life. You know, I feel like I've been really blessed to learn to live with the sensitivities that I have and with just kind of like the way that I'm built in a way that's very Uh, feels really good you know so so my music now is is quite different and that it's less an expression of of this this like angsty rebellion and cathartic breaking loose and more just uh, just singing about this the beautiful sensual experience of full embodiment in the world and growing down our roots and stretching our branches Wide, you know the ways we do as we as we age.
2: Now the autumn smells of ashes where your feet have left the road. When the road is just a memory and the future just a word. When all that is of value lies hidden in the world.
0: Do you feel like the way you make music has also changed? Yeah, it really
1: has changed. Long ago, when I started, I just would torture myself through the process of writing. I once read a book by Giacometti. I think it was by or about Giacometti, and it was a portrait of his creative process. And what I remember from the book, I read it a long time ago, so I may not get this exactly right, but just was that the the process he described, it was excruciating. The process of creating art was excruciating. And I really related to that, to people who would say, I hate writing. What I like is having written. I, I, what it was really about was just having a very overactive inner critic um, related to a lot of the things that I've just talked about. You know, questions about what what is safe to say, and and the the biggest question, the huge overriding question of like, how do I? I want to come down out of my tree and share these things that are in my heart. But do I have the bravery to do that? Do I have the courage to do that? Will anyone understand, you know, this, the words that will come out of my mouth? All that led me to have, I think, a very, a very difficult process. And when I did write, I think I just, it was always just some kind of magic that allowed me to access an altered state that would give me a brief reprieve from those critical voices and allow something to really quickly come through. Songs like my song Juniper, which I wrote during that time, which came through really, really fast. Mama, oh mama,
2: I don't wanna
1: And then also songs like Midsummer Night's Dream, which I also wrote during that time and which took a long time, not, not just a day, you know, weeks, maybe even months um, before all of those lyrics came through. So the whole way along. I would sometimes look at what I'd written and just, I would think it was a miracle that anything had gotten through at all, given the level of inner
0: struggle that I carried around the process. So did you have like a melody in your head and then from time to time a lyric would come and you'd write it down? Or was it more like you'd sit down at a certain time and be like, oh, what lyrics should I put here? Or what did that look like? It really depended,
1: but The actual coming through of the thing, whether, sometimes it would be a lyric first, sometimes it would be a melody first, and that first moment would always happen just really fast in a flash when I was distracted. You know, maybe taking a walk or going running or doing the dishes or just sitting with an instrument, that first flash of of the song would come. In the case of Midsummer Night's Dream, it was the melody that came first. And then just those first two lines, Oslan and the Silver Queen couldn't stop time, although they tried Midsummer Night's Dream. And then the the difficult part was always the rest of the song coming through. Sometimes I feel like I kind of like had it by the toe and I was like pulling it in and pulling it in. and (laughs) And eventually it would come. Some of my songs came entirely with with lyrics first, like a full set of lyrics and then the melody
0: came later. And do you uh, feel like they are coming into you from something outside of yourself?
1: Absolutely. It is the most mysterious thing and since I learned to stop fighting and enjoy it (laughs) enjoy the dance of it the courtship of creativity the relationship with those with whatever it is that sends songs through to us i now experience it really differently but it's the same i'm aware that it's the same basic elements that i'm interacting with now I just have a different relationship to them now. And there have been some tools that have been really helpful for me in changing that relationship and in healing that relationship that I had with, with creativity.
2: Mm-hmm. And
1: some of it has been allowing myself to feel, to feel what it is, whatever it is. And there's so many different ways to talk about what it is that sends songs or poems through us and through to us and i before i say anything about it i just want to say it's i think about the most mysterious process that there is so anything that i say about it i just want to give the caveat that i think there are probably a million valid ways there's an infinite number of valid ways to explain it or experience it so this is just my just my experience but But my experience really is that it is, it's spirit. It's working with spirit. And the same things that apply to having a healthy relationship with spirit apply also to having a healthy relationship with creativity. And the first most important piece of that is being really clear about what does belong to us and what doesn't about where our power ends and where spirit begins and once we get really clear on that that we come like pilgrims to the font of creativity which is spirit and which is the boundless creativity of the universe then we're in something like something like the right kind of a, um, a headspace and a heart space to be open to receive what's there from a place of gratitude and, and reverence and play and love rather than a place of grasping and fear that is where the critical voice lives in us. I live in a
2: spirit house of love.
0: A little more about what you mean when you say spirit
1: so when I talk about spirit I'm talking about the life force that runs through all things uh, I love what Dylan Thomas said he called it the green fuse that drives the flower and I experience it in my own life as a wellspring of love and wisdom that lives within each of us and that we can access. And the more we access it, the more we're able to
0: rise to meet life's challenges. Mm. And as you've grown more comfortable in your relationship with creativity, are you able to feel more ease with the songwriting process and more joy in the process? Or is it still sometimes angsty?
1: You know, it's really, it's not angsty for me anymore. The process is not angsty. Sometimes other things are angsty, like, oh, I've been trying for so long to play this heart part and I still can't do it right. You know, I get, I get frustrated about certain things. Sometimes my heart aches and I i sometimes express angst in a song. I mean, it's a, it's a way of um, healing Pains that we have and heartaches that we have, expressing loss, you know, whatever, whatever it is we need to express, but the actual process itself has become something that feels much more like a, a beautiful, playful sacrament that
0: I feel so blessed to get to engage in. Mm, oh, that's lovely. Have your goals as a singer-songwriter also changed? Your goals for what you would like the music to do in the world or what you would like to do as a musician in the world?
1: That's a really interesting question too. Hmm. You know? Yeah. I think when I started I was very on fire with songwriting and creativity, but I didn't I couldn't really have articulated what my goals really were i just was letting a lot out and letting a lot through and now i really do have goals and my goals are really about connection i feel that that art and songs in particular have the potential to open up beautiful spaces of connection in a number of different ways connection between ourselves and spirit connection between people you know when we experience the sacrament of a song together and also connection between me and the world and people that I love because there are a lot of things I can say in songs that I really can't say any other way and that I need to say I have an instinct that's going to me A yearning to understand something about the way the world works or in praise, you know, in love, in grief, grief being a form of praise. (laughs) So yeah, I'd say now that's that's what my that's what my goals with music are all about. They're all about connection.
0: Hmm. What was the journey that brought you to go to divinity school and how has that evolved? When I was
1: in my late 20s, I reached a point where the ways that I had been living just could no longer, I couldn't do anymore the things that I had been doing. I was really out there in the world in a lot of ways. I was touring, I was putting out albums, I was oftentimes playing for really large crowds when I was opening for people. And it could have seemed like I was living a kind of a dream life. I mean, I was in a sense. It was really, it was an amazing thing to get to put my music out there and be making it in a totally uncompromised way as an independent artist and get to reach the, the people that I was reaching. It was very special. It's ever as sad as it not. I, I wasn't right in my heart. A lot of it had to do with coming to, I had been raised an atheist. I been and, and I'd always struggled with that. I'd always really been a seeker from the time I was a very small child. I remember talking to spirit and talking to God, trying to find a way to um, deepen, into ways of feeling and knowing that I intuitively kind of felt but didn't see represented around me anywhere, not in my family, not in the schools that I was raised in. And I think as a way of just harmonizing with the environment that I was raised in, I, I really had rejected spirit. I had taken on a, a kind of an atheistic view myself And instead, just basically worshipped art. Like, all the things that I now find in spirit, I was looking for in art back then. So um, just the sense of there being something greater than myself that I was in relationship with... And even song making itself and performance as a form of a a sort of a ritual. And I I was in theater for a while, too. and, And that, too, was, you know, a way for I was trying to find my way into some kind of ritual that could help me where I could experience more meaning and connection in life and more of a connection to the mythic. And so that was how I'd been living. And it hadn't really solved the problems that I <laughs> that I had you know I, I had been looking to art as kind of an end in and of itself and um, I was just really deeply unhappy In my late twenties, I finally just came to a place where I just I just couldn't take it anymore. And I stepped away from my life as a singer-songwriter. And I said to myself, I just I've gotta sort these things out. I'm just gonna figure this out. I, I don't seem to be able to figure it out through songs. So this is gonna set that aside for a little while. And instead I started to read. And I started to read books by Joseph Campbell and by Carl Jung and uh, Clarissa Pingola Estes, and a lot of different people in kind of a Jungian space who are all writing about ritual and about mythos and about folklore as ways of understanding the way that the psyche works. And I was finding a lot of nourishment there. So I decided to go back to school. So I went to college. I hadn't finished college. I dropped out in my early 20s. But I went to, I went to college and I ended up studying comparative religion. And then I was just enjoying that. So when the opportunity came up to go to Harvard and study it in graduate school there, I decided to continue with it. So I, I did it some more. And the other piece was around questions of right livelihood, wanting to do more in direct service of people, wanting to teach, wanting to do things where I wasn't just on a stage with a lot of people watching me in the dark, but where I could really connect, you know, with students in a class, for example. So I also became certified to teach high school English at that time as well. And I entered this period of, on the one hand, on the one hand, it was really, really nourishing and wonderful. And on the other hand, this time that I spent really, having stepped away from art being the central thing of my life was also quite painful it was mm-hmm. it was like a, a also like a desert you know i just remember being in divinity school and we just read an ungodly amount i mean we would read you know a couple thousand pages a week dense dense books that we would have to be able to basically it back, you know, the, the central <laughs> thesis. It was, it was just a lot. And during that time, I felt exiled from my creative world and yet had kind of embraced that exile because it had been hard. Being an artist in the world had been hard. And it took some years. It really took some years of that and realizing that academic study also did not hold the answers that I really was seeking to eventually find my way back to art and to music and to creativity again, ultimately in a really different kind of a stance.
0: like the things you learned in those times, you're now able to incorporate into creating art? Yeah.
1: I think the time I spent in divinity school, when I look back on it, what I cherish most is all of the little jewels that I got to collect. Some of them being, oh, discovering Rumi and other Sufi poets learning about poetic forms that I had never known before, Um, developing a much deeper relationship to spiritual texts, and just finding a lot of richness in those deep, old, mysterious, wondrous stories. All of those things that I gathered from that time have entered into my own creative universe and now really deeply inform all of my writing on some level.
2: Massive
1: and strange was the
2: beast in the street lamp. Trembling and grand in a haze. This was the look of surprise of a wandering king With a face long forgotten
0: He started playing the harp just in the last couple of years How did that come about? I know there's a story there Oh, the harp was just a
1: great miracle in my life. It has proved to me that truly anything is possible. Because I was walking along in my life. I had two small children, a little girl and a little boy. They were both under, well, they both were five years old and three years old approximately, maybe six and three. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I was not looking for a new instrument to play. I mean, if you had asked me, I would have said, there's no way in the world that I would think of taking up another instrument right now. My hands were so full as a mother and with all the things I was doing to make a living. There just was so much. I, I had no way I had, had space for an instrument. But the funniest thing happened. I was at a friend's house, and this friend is a a friend of my parents' generation, someone I've known since I was a very small child. And she's always been a magic maker in my life. She used to come over when I was a toddler. I remember she would come over, and she would bring always a handful of magical things, like a broken lipstick canister and a little chipped model of a cherub and just tiny little just little trinkety things she understood a child's imagination and she was always doing things that would feed my imagination as a child so many many years later now i'm a mother of two children and i went to visit Adrienne at her house her name is Adrienne. she has been a preschool teacher And she has a wonderful house filled with all kinds of incredible things, primarily craft makings like dishes of buttons and boxes full of egg cartons and milk cartons and popsicle sticks and glue and glitter and everything you can imagine. You can go and just make things. My children were making something and I happened to be just looking around the room and I noticed that in a corner of the room, there was this tiny little carved harp It had only 12 strings, really like something that a fairy might play, you know, a fairy child It was really quite small. And something happened to me when I saw this harp. I've seen other harps in my life. It's not like I'd never seen a harp. I'd never really paid much attention to harps, but something happened. I just saw this harp and I was just drawn over to it and I picked it up and I just knew that I had to learn to play this instrument. I heard it basically speak to me, you know, just say, play me. <laughs> and I, I, I brought it over to my friend and I, I just said, hey, what's the story of this? And there are many wonderful things about my friend Adrian, but one of them is that she's just incredibly generous. And she said, oh, it's obviously meant for you. Why don't you take it home? So I brought the little harp home with me, and I began to play it. There's something about the fact that it was tiny that helped, because as a mother, as a busy mother, just doing so much always to keep everyone clothed and fed and not having a lot of time for myself, if it had been a big harp, I probably wouldn't have been able to do it. But because it was tiny, and I could just take it out and just kind of be sitting on the couch where my children were drawing, I could start to play on it a little bit. It snuck in, it was small enough that it could sneak into my life. And I loved it so much that pretty soon I got bigger harp. And then before I knew it, I was really starting to take it very seriously and practice, you know, really like doing what I needed to to make space for it in my life. Like, move out of the way. I'm playing the harp. This I'm prioritizing this. I'm going to make it happen. And then I got an even bigger harp, and, you know, the rest is history. It's been a little under two years, and I have just really given myself to this instrument. I've got a new album I've almost finished that's all harp songs. And the reason that I'm excited to share this story is just because it reminds me of what's possible for any of us with regards to creativity, how sometimes Ideas that could become terribly important to us begin with just that one moment where you glimpse something and you feel a sense of wonder of, and just what happens when we say yes to that? Like God knows why. Goddess knows. Why why did I have the courage to say yes? How did I say yes? But somehow I did. And that's
0: very powerful. A Yes to a little thing sometimes. Yeah, there's something about that. I really relate to that because sometimes you get an exciting idea, but you turn away from it, right? Like you think, oh, I could do this, but then a voice comes in that's like, oh, no, that would take so long and it would be, but when you say yes, then it just sort of one thing leads to another, right? Yes. Well, that's really magical that you could come in such a relatively short time for a new instrument to writing on it and writing songs for it. And that's very exciting. I have come to
1: feel that for creators, yes is the magic word. And we need to practice saying yes. And it helps to start by saying yes to small things saying yes, where it's easy to say yes. And then maybe we start to hear bigger questions that we can also respond to with a yes. And then eventually we get to where we can even say the no's that we need to say to make space for the yes, (laughs) if that makes any sense. Like, (laughs) Like, no, I'm not gonna do these other things that I was doing. I'm gonna put those things aside so that I can make space for this yes that my heart is saying so deeply. So in that yes can just begin a real life shift.
0: Mm, Yeah, that's so important to keep in mind, the power of a simple yes and where it might lead. We're at a moment of tremendous upheaval, both in our nation and in the world, with climate change and the pandemic and now the huge surge of energy around the Black Lives Matter movement and the focus on reforming the police and the justice system. It's such an intense, profound, historical moment. What do you see as the role of artists in all of this? What is our piece of the puzzle? So I've been thinking about this question
1: a lot. And Wow, this is a really powerful moment to be alive in America right now. Um, I've been learning a lot and coming to understand that while Black folks and other people of color have led the fight for equity in this country, that real change is not going to happen until white folks wake up and decide that the system as it is is no longer okay with us. I'm coming to understand that white supremacy is woven into every aspect of American life and that it's actively causing harm to black folks and people of color every day and that it's a problem that white folks need to be the ones to solve. And my hope is that as artists, that we each do everything that we can To help leverage this moment towards real and lasting change by using our voices and our platforms in whatever ways we can and I realize this might look really different for different people you know for some people that might mean writing protest songs and for others of us it might mean other forms of action you know like Um, lifting up the voices of artists of color, like really looking at the community spaces that we tend and bringing the kinds of conversations that can help make those spaces more equitable and inclusive for all members of oppressed groups. Um, It might look like connecting people in our orbits, people who listen to us, you know, with with actions to get involved with and doing whatever we can to call other white folks into the work as well. And you know, just to relate this back to my prime theme, which up till now has been spirit and nature, I am coming to understand that to heal our relationship to the earth is not possible without also returning to right relationship with each other you know that these two things really can't be separated the movement for the earth and the movement for social justice they can really be seen as one movement we're we're all connected we belong to the earth and we belong to the human family which includes all peoples and we have an opportunity now to do right by that belonging by helping to make the change that needs to come.
0: Wow. Yes. Beautifully said. Thank you so much, Noe. It's been so lovely to talk to you. Thanks so much. And thank you so much for listening to Off Leash Arts, Conversations on Creativity. I'm your host, Tanya Schaefer. Please tune in again next time when I'll be talking to dancer, choreographer, and founder of the Grown Women's Dance Collective, Tanya Amos. Until then, take good care and stay off-leash.